Thank you. In case, um, in case you were wondering, Alan is my favorite Baptist. And that's no small thing. As an American, I know quite a lot of Baptists, Southern and otherwise, um, and Alan is still my favorite. So, um, James, am I okay if I stand here? Am I going to be in the camera shot? Yep, good. Okay, great. There's a rumor that this is being recorded, um, which as an immigrant, I assume Pretty Patel is always recording what I say. Um, so that's not unusual for me, but there you go. We are going to look tonight in just a few minutes at a passage from Acts chapter 17, verses 10 to 15, which is about Paul's missionary journey. Um, and we're going to reflect a little bit on that and what it has to say to us about uh, something that I suspect Tom will be talking a little bit about through February, which is church planning and some of the challenges that go with it, but call more generally and, and reflecting on that. But before we do that, um, I want to try and give you a sense of, of what I want to say to you tonight by telling you a little bit uh, of a story about uh, a journey I just took. So um, at Christmas, my, uh, my wife and my two boys and I had the first opportunity to go back to America for, it was the first time I'd been back in two years um, for the boys longer, uh, the first time we'd seen a lot of our family in, depending on how you count, two and a half to three years, depending on who it was. Um, and that means I haven't been going anywhere near as many plane journeys as I used to go on. I used to travel quite a bit, and I used to travel to the States at least a couple of times a year. Um, and so the deal I have always made with myself because of that is if I am able to watch a film while I am on a long-haul flight, transatlantic uh, film, you know, flight or whatever, I always watch the least, like, cinematic, great piece I can find. It's like nothing but trashy action films and, you know, like so Fast and the Furious, um, Marvel superhero films, like the least, like just brain candy. Just like, you know, shut it off, let it just wash over you. You don't have to think at all. So I'd forgotten about that because I hadn't been on a plane for a long time. And so we got on the plane to fly to America uh, the weekend before Christmas. And I thought, ooh, I can watch, I can watch a bad action movie. This is great. Um, and they happened to have uh, one of the Batman films, which I watched, uh, the Christian Bale Batman films, the, the real Batman films, um, not whatever that thing that's coming out now is. Um, and then they had Creed II. Now, I am old enough to remember when Rocky was a thing, let alone Creed. Um, and so I watched Creed II. Now, let's establish a couple of things. Creed 2 is not a great film. Michael B. Jackson, Michael B. Jordan, Michael B. Jordan, not Michael B. Jackson. He's one of the famous Michaels. Michael B. Jordan, but not Michael Jordan, um, is, uh, is, is, is ripped beyond all possible human comprehension, um, which always makes me feel a bit inferior as I'm watching such films, right? Um, and three, Creed follows the formula of every one of the Rocky and Creed films before it, of every film I think Sylvester Stallone has written. Which might make you think, oh, that's a bad film. But actually, actually, this whole sermon tonight is brought to you by Sylvester Stallone. Because Sylvester Stallone films, the Rocky films, have two basic plot points, right? Two basic plot points, and they really, really work because they're really, really true to life. Now, they're not done in a particularly sophisticated manner, but they're true to life. One, when you're trying to do something big, stuff always goes wrong. 
the plan never quite works the way you want to, right? Whatever Rocky is doing, whoever he's going to fight, whatever's supposed to happen, right, it goes wrong. Or Rocky two, or Rocky four, right, which is basically what all these, you know, Apollo um, fights the big Russian Drago and he dies and, oh, everything goes wrong and all that. So one, whenever you have a plan and you have a big plan and you want to try and accomplish something, something always goes wrong, right? So that's the first thing we're going to see tonight is actually that's true. That, that seems to be almost written into the fabric of creation, um, and it seems to happen again and again and again and again and again in our lives. The second thing is, you then have to make a personal decision that you want to overcome that, but you can never do that as an individual. There's always a team, right? So Rocky assembles a team of people who are going to help him train. Right? Please, everybody hear Eye of the Tiger in your head. Can you please, just, is everybody hearing Eye of the Tiger now? Right? Okay, right? Okay, please don't all get up and go for a run at the moment, which is what Eye of the Tiger makes you want to do, right? But there's this big, huge training scene, and there's all these people who are helping him, right? You know, overflow of testosterone, and then big denouement, Rocky wins, Creed wins, everything goes right. But it only goes right because there's a team, and it's the relationships that form as part of that overcoming, right, that is the big thing that gets celebrated at the end, Right? Now, I'm not suggesting to you that somehow Sylvester Stallone has had some great insight into the fabric of the universe and writes these wonderful films based on that. What I'm suggesting to you is Sylvester Stallone, in his infinite wisdom, has looked around at life and gone, these two things seem to happen to everybody everywhere in some way. Maybe we should just make films about that. And do you know why those films keep working and people keep seeing them? Not just because they want to shut their brains off while they're on long flights, but because there is something true to our life and our experience in that. Whenever we have a plan, whenever we cast our way out to do something big, stuff tends to go wrong, and we have to deal with that. And the way in which we deal with that, the way in which anything great ever gets done, the way in which we ever achieve that goal, is never as an individual. There's always a team. And it is very often people who did not expect to be called on or plan to step up into those roles, who step up alongside us or with us and allow us to accomplish those things. And that's exactly what we're going to see when we look at this story of Paul and Timothy and Silas tonight. And it's exactly the thing that I think God wants to say to you and to this church as we get ready to go through thinking about calling and vision and what might be next. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me again, Acts chapter 17. It's verses 10 to 15. It's not a particularly long passage. It's not a particularly complex one. Um, there's a rumor there might be slides. I don't know. Jexy, is there? Brilliant. Thank you. Um, so you'll see this on the screen behind me, and I'm just going to read through this real quick. So you may remember, <clears throat> as we come to this story, that Paul has been on this journey. He's been sent out from Jerusalem to travel around to these different churches, some of which he's started already, some of which are new places to him, to visit them. And so they have just been in Thessaloniki, and they've just been kicked out of Thessaloniki. And it says, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas on their way to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And this is what Paul does every town he comes to, especially if it's a new one to him. 
Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Not that Luke has an opinion, but clearly Luke has an opinion. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessaloniki learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. By the way, the Thessalonians who aren't part of the church really don't like Paul, really not pleased with him. So the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, Paul is on this journey to visit churches that he'd already founded, largely, but also he's going to end up in some new places, but not necessarily by design. Paul leaves Jerusalem, and we see at the end of Acts 15 and Acts 16, and basically what he wants to do is to go around all those churches where he'd been and to take a collection from them to take back to the church in Jerusalem, which is being persecuted by a number of different groups in Jerusalem um, and is really struggling to survive. And Paul wants to bring this monetary offering to them to show how much the rest of the church cares for them and wants to see them do well. And Paul wants to do that, and then he wants to get on his way to Rome because he thinks he's supposed to go to Rome because it seems like Paul believes that if he can take the good news, the gospel, of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and return to come to the ends of the world, and basically Rome and then Spain are the ends of the known world at this point, then maybe Jesus will come back. So that's what Paul wants to do. He's got a mission. This is the thing I want to do. And everything that happens from the time Paul leaves Jerusalem thwarts that plan. He can't go where he wants to go. He can't get back to some of the churches he wants to get back. It's this vision of this man in Macedonia that says you're supposed to go over to Greece. Paul doesn't want to go to Greece. He wants to go to Rome, right? He wants to go to the Italian peninsula. And then he wants to go to Spain, right? He doesn't want to go to Greece. But now he's supposed to go to Greece, right? So now he's, he's, he's in these new places. And along the way, on top of not being able to get where he wants to go... He keeps running into people who are literally trying to beat him and stone him to death for what he is saying. Things are not going according to plan, right? If you have a plan and things go this badly compared to your plan, all of your friends will say to you, you should have another plan. <laughs> this is not working out well. Let's reevaluate. But Paul keeps taking these punches on the chin, literally sometimes as they come, and going, I think I'm supposed to keep moving in this direction, but I, I've now been sent this way, and then I've been sent that way, and I've been sent this way. So if I have to keep going back and forth to eventually get where I'm trying to go, that's fine. Maybe good things will happen along the way. But this is not going according to plan. Now, we've all had that experience in life. And um, generally speaking, as someone who speaks in front of groups in church, I hate to try and illustrate these things in contemporary life using my own life. 
But then again, sometimes your life just fits what you need. So I want to tell you a little story about how I got here tonight from where I was in 2003. In the least, in a thing that least resembles a straight line in, 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 in all of my experience. Um, so in 2003, um, if you can think about this, um, I was working for a bank and um, I was helping them to do uh, information technology projects. I, I, I was a management consultant and then I was doing project management. Um, and through a whole series of circumstances, which I won't explain to you, I became convinced, and I think rightfully so, many, many years later, that I was supposed to leave my job and go get trained so that I could be a vicar, so that I could go and plant a church somewhere. Enough people thought I was not absolutely insane to think this, that I quit my job, which at the time paid me a substantial sum of American dollars, uh, which were worth something at the time. Um, uh, and I convinced my wife to quit her job, which paid her a fairly substantial sum of American dollars. And we moved from where we were living to a whole other city where we knew no one so that I could go to graduate school for three years to be trained to be a pastor and to plant churches. I don't regret that decision for a day, but I cannot tell you how different my life has turned out from what I thought at the time. We thought we would be there for three years, I would finish. We felt distinctly called, had lots of conversations with people that we were supposed to go to a major metropolitan area. We were having serious conversations with people about planting a church in New York City. I still love New York. I'll just be honest with you. If someone offers me a job in New York that I can live off of tomorrow, we are packing the boxes and we're going. It's the only place in America I would live. Everywhere else is off the table for lots of reasons. Um, so we got to seminary, theological college, and um, we started. I was going to school full-time. My wife was working full-time. Uh, I was working at Starbucks many hours a week, um, uh, for, uh, for the, which, which I, I still have a lovely green apron, right? So if you come over to my house and I make you a coffee, I make it for you while wearing a Starbucks apron. Um, and I was making it, and I was making it because I thought, God, this is what you want me to do. You said very clearly, this is what you want me to do. And about a year and a half in, after I had um, started doing a little bit of work at the church we were attending, and I was, you know, things were going fine at school, my wife had been having, and I had been having lots of conversations about what we would do and where we would go and how we would find this place that we were supposed to plant this church and all this. I came home one night from having worked that morning at Starbucks, I think, so having been up at 5 a.m. to work and serve other people coffee, um, and then gone to an afternoon of classes, and then been to the library, and then to come home at sort of 6 o'clock. Come in the door, say hello to my wife. She says, how was your day? Fine. How was your day? Fine. She looks at me and she says, um, is chicken okay for dinner? I said, yeah, that sounds great. She goes, by the way, um, I don't think I can be a pastor's wife. Uh, excuse me? Pretty sure that's the only reason we're here. What, uh, okay, if you don't think you can be a pastor's wife, um, what, what, do you, what do you think we, we should do? She said, I think you should go on and get a PhD and, and teach. Now, pause button for a second. I have been, for 18 months, 
like all my waking hours either working or studying and was loving much of it, but that was all I was doing. And what my wife just tabled was, why don't you go and do another four years of that? I thought, I'm going to be dead. It won't matter whether or not I get a PhD in the end. I will be dead. I looked at her. I said, I cannot speak to you. And literally did not speak to her the rest of the night. I was like, I cannot have this conversation. I went to school the next day. I was sitting having lunch with my two best mates at school who'd known me now for a year and a half. We took classes together. We talked together. We did all sorts of stuff together. And I said to them, by the way, my wife has lost her marbles. They said, really, why do you think that? I said, we had this conversation last night. She says that she thinks we're not supposed to go and plant churches, uh, that I'm supposed to go and get a PhD and go on and teach. You know that awkward silence between friends when it goes perfectly quiet and you think, it's not supposed to be perfectly quiet. Why is it quiet? What are you not saying? Why are you not saying it to me? Silence. Really long, awkward silence. And finally, one of them looks at me. He goes, um, yeah, we've been trying to figure out how to tell you that for about six months now. <laughs> So that was when, about a week later, I decided, okay, I guess I need to figure out what it takes to get a PhD, because I'm always the last one to know. God does tell me what I'm supposed to do my, with my life, but just last. Everybody else around me knows first, and then I find out. So off we went. I didn't ever expect that that would take me overseas, but because I had a group of people around me who knew me and knew what I was trying to do better than I did, a lot of them said, have you ever thought about this? And I looked into it, and there were options. And my wife, God bless her, was foolish enough to go, yeah, sure, let's go. <laughs> I went, okay, let's go. Um, there's a really funny story, which I won't tell you, about us actually traveling over and, um, and getting um, to where we were supposed to be staying, and our room wasn't ready, and we had to stay in student accommodation, like in separate beds, you know, on separate sides of, a, of, of a, like a residence hall room, which, by the way, when you've been married for a few years, is not your idea of, hello, welcome to a new country. Um, I did my PhD. It did nearly kill me. Um, our, our son, who's here, who's 12, was born um, at the very beginning of my last year, um, which means we had an infant in the house when I was trying to write my PhD. It's a bad idea. I went back after about six months after I'd finished, and I thought, some of these sentences aren't even sentences. I clearly didn't have enough sleep. Um, we finished. I thought, okay, what do I do now? I got to get a job. I couldn't get a job straight away, so I got one-year jobs. And for us, that meant that as, uh, as immigrants, my visa was tied to these one-year posts. So every year, we didn't know whether or not we'd be able to stay the next year for three years. Uh, we, we were absolutely literally at the end of our rope uh, about uh, two months before our visa was going to run out. I can remember we had a conversation sitting on the floor. I was on one uh, side of the kitchen leaning up against the cabinets. My wife was sitting on the other side of the kitchen on the floor leaning up in cabinets in tears thinking, okay, we have to go back to America. We don't want to go back to America now. We have to, but we have to. We can't stay legally. And then a couple of weeks later, I got an interview at the University of Sheffield. And a few weeks after that, I had another interview. And a week later, I had a job offer. And we not only weren't leaving the country, we were moving to a city that we'd never been to before. Now, praise God, I love Sheffield and am super thrilled to be here. 
And then we walked through those doors back here when we'd been in Sheffield maybe six weeks. And one of the first people we met was Helen Ward and then Alan Ward, and they introduced us to a few other people, and before I knew it, we were here, and this was our church, and our kid was in uh, the youth, uh, in, the, in, in the children's work, um, and I was helping, and Mick asked me to speak, and we were going to be here. And I felt this weird call to put myself forward for ordination in the Church of England. Because the call that had started in 2003 had never really gone. And it had never really changed. But I'd gone this way and that way and this way and that way and this way and that way and this way and that way. And all along the way, God did some amazing things. But none of them were what I planned. We were involved in multiple church plants in different ways in those many years, in those 15 years. We didn't plan any of them, but they are in some ways still going, and people are coming to know Jesus through them, because we played bit parts rather than leading. I only made it through all of that. I only made it into the ordination process and through the ordination process because of a team of people around me. That's the way it tends to go. If I might say it in the opposite formulation, if there are not things thwarting what you feel like God is calling you to do, your call might not be big enough. Because I have never met anyone, and I've been a lot of places since 2003, I've never met anyone who was truly and genuinely called to do what God wanted them to do who didn't experience this in some way. If it is all going smoothly, God bless you. But I would ask you to go back and ask God, is this really as big as your call on my life is supposed to be? My experience was never that that was, um, the, the, the most of the problems happened to me. I changed directions a lot, but all the challenges we experienced, for, by and large, happened to my wife. They happened to people around me that I cared about that made what I was doing harder. I was listening to Liam talk about what Liam wants to do, and I love Liam to death, and I'm so pleased for him and proud of what he's going to go do. But what I would say to you tonight is pray for Joe. Because Joe will be the one who will experience all sorts of challenge and difficulty in her life. It's the way in which calls of God tend to get upended by the one that wants to upend them. And that will be true in whatever Tom calls and sets out a vision for you to do. Tom's probably going to talk about church planning, as I said, about what Paul is doing. Paul experienced nothing but challenges and difficulty. If you read Paul's letters, which make up such a huge component of the New Testament, very little of them is, it seems to be going well. <laughs> Almost all of them is, oh, Lord, help them, please. Oh, Lord, help me. Lord, help us all. It's a mess. But it's still trying to do what God called them to do, what Jesus promised to bless. So when Tom talks about planning churches, 
That is brilliant, and I'm so pleased that that is going to be a part of the next part of the next phase of STC's life. But expect it to go pear-shaped. Don't expect it to go pear-shaped necessarily because of what happens to Tom or what happens to uh, the, I think it's Luke is the name of the curate who's coming. Yeah, Luke, a guy called Luke from the South. I hope he has a brother called Bo. Um, if they have a big orange sports car, that's a joke you'd only understand if you know what the Dukes of Hazard is. Tom does, so he's laughing right now. Nobody else is. This was a joke for Tom, right? But don't, you know, it, it won't be Tom or Luke. Pray for Clarissa. Pray for Luke's wife. Pray for their kids. Pray for the people around them. Right? Paul gets out okay. Do you think it was easy for Silas and Timothy to be the ones left behind? Do you think they just had it simple because Paul went off? No. It was probably a mess. That's why they were supposed to come and follow Paul. And that is why, back to Sylvester Stallone, the only way to make a big dream like that work, the only way to truly pursue a call of God like that is to have a team. If it depends on one person, it will almost always fail. Because we're fallible humans. And we get tired. Even if things go well, we get tired. And we get spent, and we run out of ideas, and eventually we become dry. People get used to hearing what we have to say. That's why you need a team. It very often doesn't go as well as it can, and that is why you need a team when things go wrong and someone can't be there. Someone moves on. Someone does another thing. Next person steps up. Is that what Timothy and Silas thought they were getting themselves into? Probably not. Is, is that what you thought you were getting yourselves into when you started coming along to STC? Maybe not. Some of you will only maybe be in Sheffield for a few years. You may be here as a student. You may move on for some reason, for a job, for, to, see, you know, to be closer to family or whatever. Some of you um, may be here for a long time but never thought this was what you were signing up for. But being part of the team and ready to step up as God has equipped you is how you support the vision. That doesn't necessarily mean being the person up front. That can be doing lots of different things. But a vision, as Alan said, only works if everybody's involved because it will not go according to plan and it will require someone other than the person up front. It will require someone who will go, while you are away, we can do this. Because ultimately, what church planning is about, what following the call is about, what Liam talked about, what following my call has been about, which doesn't look anything like I thought, teaching ancient history, being the bishop's advisor and having conversations with people from other faiths, is nothing like what I thought I would do. But every step along the way, from 2003 and even before that, as I began to seriously think about what it meant to follow Jesus, what I realized is every day when I wake up, whatever the call is, is about me being the hands and feet of Jesus to the people around me. Maybe in a big way, 
Maybe in a small way. Maybe in a way that I planned for, that I trained for, that I wanted. Maybe in a way that I feel completely out of my depth, totally unprepared for, and utterly uninterested in. But to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So as I draw to a close, um, if the band can find their way up and out and back to the front, what I want you to think about as you go away from here tonight are two questions. What is God calling you to do? And I do really hope that you will think about that over the next week. Because as you go into February and Tom starts telling you what the vision of the church is, as Alan said, the only way that that's going to work is where you can see where the vision of the church and God's call on you intersect. Where those two things meet is the sweet spot. And you move in that direction. But move in that direction knowing that things will go wrong. Because if you are pursuing a call that is truly of God, and is truly of the size that God wants you to be pursuing, to make a difference with your life, things will go wrong. But see if you can find that intersection and move out in that way. Look around you for the people that you need to pray for and go, God, protect these people around me that might be attacked. These people around me who might experience this as even more heavy and arduous than me. And don't do it alone. Do it as part of this community at STC. Do it as part of your community of friends at school, or at college, at university, in your workplace, uh, in, your, in your cell group, in your cluster, wherever that is. Do it with those people around you. Let them know what you're doing so that when the hurdle comes, when you get knocked back, when you get knocked sideways, when you have to tack direction, there are people who can go, we know what you're trying to do. We can step up. We can help you with that. And be prepared to do that in the life of this community at STC. Because the way a big vision for God gets accomplished is for a community of people who know that on a daily basis, all they are called to do is to be the hands and feet of Jesus. To seek to do that in the way that you feel gifted and equipped, but to be prepared to do that in whatever way is necessary today and tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after. Keep that obedience day after week, after month, after year. And that's why you all, by and large, the youngest group in the church are so important. Because people like me, we're going we're to move on. We're going to be old. We're going to be yesterday's news. And you are still going to have years and decades ahead of you. Maybe in another place. Maybe in another city. Maybe in another country. Maybe on another continent which is my story. And God will still be using you. With all the things that you learned here and the vision that he set forward for you, the thing that God called you to do. Let's pray. Lord, you chose, often in a way that we don't understand, 
and we might do differently to build your kingdom through us. You chose to make us your hands and your feet to this broken world. You chose to use us to love people, to right wrongs, to heal wounds, to mend up hearts, to make relationships and repair relationships, to show your grace, your mercy, your love, and your compassion to the people that we meet and the people around us. Lord, we are not up to the task. But you use us anyway. You equip us. You encourage us. You sustain us. You make things happen that we never believed possible. And it is a joy to see you do it. Lord, I pray for each and every person here tonight. I pray that in this next week that you would help give them a stronger sense of what you are calling them to do. And so that as the journey through February happens and Tom sets out the vision for this church, that people can see where it intersects with the thing that you are calling them to do and that they would not be afraid of a big call. And even if it changes, even if they don't see it, experience as a straight line, that you would assure them that you are with them every step of the way, Lord, and that you are continuing to build your kingdom through each and every one of them. Lord, I believe, we as a community believe that you are capable of every bit of that. And we will give you thanks and praise as you do it. We pray all this in the name of your precious Son, our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.